You're listening to Dairy Voice by Dairy Business News, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. One of our sponsors of the Dairy Voice podcast is National DHIA. NDHIA ensures information accuracy and represents their members' interests. They are the direct voice for the dairy information industry. To find out more, go to dhia.org. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thanks for tuning in to Dairy Voice podcast by Dairy Business News. I'm Connie Cooper of Connor AgriScience and Seal Pro Silage Barrier Films. So today's topic is really hot. You're going to want to bookmark this podcast and share it. We're talking about beef on dairy, and I'm joined by Dr. Dale Warner of Texas Tech University. I'll let Dr. Warner introduce himself in a second, but we are going to be talking about the basics of breeding and feeding this cross, what we can do to enhance the value of of those animals and how they fit in the food chain. So welcome Dr. Warner to Dairy Voice Podcast. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this place in your career and what your affiliation with Cargill is all about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be on the the podcast today. Uh, Name is Dale Warner. I do have a PhD in meat science, uh, which is a little bit hard to to explain and understand at times. But to summarize that, uh, do a lot of research for the entire meat industry, focus a lot on beef. My position here at Texas Tech is focused primarily on the composition of muscle foods coming from livestock. I'm a professor and Cargill Endowed Professor in Sustainable Meat Science. The relationship with the entire industry and especially Cargill is very strong in that we do research that benefits uh, the red meat industry, predominantly working in processing facilities, working with producers who are ultimately producing those live animals and livestock for purpose of consumers enjoying that product in a wholesome nutritional package or nutritious package in the retail setting, food service setting, and beyond. So uh, again, focusing in production aspects how that influences and impacts eating quality predominantly is what we do. Partnership with Cargill has been tremendous because Cargill has allowed for us uh, to gain access to to the animals and carcasses coming through their facilities so that we can compare and, and characterize those things to help better explain what's going on. Our audience, Dr. Warner, is mainly dairy producers Although we might be drawing some feedlot operators once they see the title of this uh, podcast. Just last week, I was in Nebraska for the Nebraska Cattlemen meeting, and they there was a, a seminar given on this very topic. The feeders were very, very interested in, in how to learn how to feed these animals, how to care for them and handle them and that kind of thing, um, just to, to kind of get some information for themselves. So it's becoming an extremely relevant topic. That said, being that we have mostly dairy listeners, can you give some background for dairy producers who have for years bred and fed cattle for milk production, just as different processors of milk are looking for different components? I'm sure that different packers uh, are looking for things different in terms of consistency of the carcass, cutability, and meat quality. So please give us a little background on to what dairy farmers need to know about the beef feeding markets. 
Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of parallels and similarities between the industries of dairy and, and beef production. Just a reminder that that dairymen and women are beef producers and always have been. And, that's true. you know, whether that's through cull cows uh, off of the dairy operation, which is a, a frequent occurrence, right? As we turn over that dairy herd, we're producing beef products from the cows themselves. Today, we're here talking more about uh, the progeny or the offspring coming from those cows, uh, specifically as crossbreds. Historically, those have been purebreds in the sense of, of Holstein or Jersey, predominantly, coming off of those dairies, many of which, most of which, especially the males, but also the cull females or heifers, have been fed in our industry uh, for young graded beef or fed beef. Whether they're purebred Holsteins, purebred Jerseys, or crossbreds, as we're discussing today, the components of those are important. If we talk about components from the sense of lean, fat, and bone, commonly discussed that is carcass yield or even yield grade coming from those carcasses are critical. Of course, we want to optimize or maximize the amount of lean uh, edible portion of those animals for beef, but that comes along with, with fat that's trimmable, trimmable on the outside of the carcass but also the ever important fat that goes inside the muscle. Uh, for example, you know, drawing parallel to milk fat as a component of fluid milk. So that, that marbling component or internal fat component, uh, a major driver for the eating qualities of those carcasses. So it's a true balance really between eating quality through marbling or what we call intramuscular fat and the composition or components of those carcasses that drive value. The beef industry has utilized yield grade as an estimate of those components and proportions to one another and quality grade, which is in reference primarily to marbling. But those two things, yield grade and quality grade, used in balance to determine the value of the carcass coming from those animals. Other things to discuss would be like dressing percentage, uh, which is the proportion of that live animal that gets converted to carcass. Of course, we like for that to be a higher proportion of the animal going to carcass or edible form. And so all of those things really come into play. But we're in the component business and maybe even more so in the quality business and producing better eating quality of beef coming from, from these animals. Dairy One's Soil Laboratory provides a variety of industries with soil testing and analysis. For most of our customers, their businesses literally start from the ground up. A soil analysis will help our customers ensure that the right nutrients are available in the soil or if additional fertilizers are needed. These decisions will impact their plant growth and yield. If you need to improve your soil's health, Dairy One is ready to help. Contact the Dairy One Soil Laboratory by emailing soil at dairyone.com. That's dairyone.com. What can you also tell me about when I go look at a pen of steers, they're just like each other. What are they looking for there? Uniformity and consistency is, is critical. Uh, for all production agriculture, uh, one of the downsides, candidly, about beef production is we don't get as much uniformity and consistency as we do normally get, for, exa for example, in 
poultry, right? Where we're harvesting chickens or turkeys that are all very much the same size and age. The beef industry has quite a variety uh, due to seasonality differences, breed differences, and, and certainly um, the traditional dairy animal, as well as the crossbred animal in this case, offer some variety. And, and variety can be good, but in general, we are pursuing uniformity and consistency. The, the dairy animals, whether they're crossbreds or straightbred dairy animals, tend to offer a, a large amount of consistency because of the genetic uniformity, uh, particularly in the, the cow side of that equation. But we're creating intentionally you know, some variety with the sire selection uh, when we introduce those beef sires into the mix. Different producers have different targets in, in terms of the types of sires they're choosing to mate to their cows, uh, whether they're pursuing those components or lean, lean yield values or marbling uh, in particular, uh, or a balance of the two. I, I think it'd be reasonable to say that we should be pursuing balance but in many cases, we have producers uh, really seeking after that marbling potential because marbling is such a big driver for carcass value and as a result, animal value. Uh, so it gets a little bit lopsided at times in, in that we're selecting sires to produce a lot of marbling and eating quality, which oftentimes is contradictory to the lean value or the component value of those carcasses. So the balance is good, but it's not always a reality in what we see um, in these animals because the market signal is to produce marbling. Right. Uh, and so we need carcass weight for pay weight, and then we need quality in the way of marbling to, to get the most value out of these animals. I understand, and I, I appreciate your point about how dairy producers are have been beef producers all along. But with this uh, this cross, this interest in the cross, it's it's really very high, this interest from what I have heard. So why do you suppose that is? Yeah, the interest is good. Of course, the interest is seeded by value, right? These crossbreds are much more valuable today than the traditional purebred Holstein steer uh, ever was. The reason really goes back to a major shift in our industry in 2016, where the industry, in particular one packer, standing up and saying, we really do not want any of these Holsteins in our, in our processing facilities. The carcasses were too long. Uh, the carcasses were low yielding. I mean, they created issues within, within those processing facilities. So when that packer made the stand to, to really go away from the Holstein cattle, the value of the purebred Holstein steer dropped. And, and dairy men and women had to find a way to add value back to that, that calf, that secondary product off of their farm. The best way at the time, and, and still today, the best way to do that was to introduce beef genetics into that scenario. Beef genetics Im made improvement on many of the aspects of the traditional Holstein steer in that those steers became heavier muscled. Uh, those steers became shorter. The carcasses were shorter. Um, which which provided greater processing ease in the facilities. But also these animals were maintaining levels of marbling, producing high quality beef. Uh, so making that shift, the opportunity and, and you know, made it a, a, a 
really cool or, or opportunistic time for these animals to enter the, the market. Uh, we've seen the purebred Holstein and, and certainly Jersey markets diminish on the fed beef side of the equation because of those original issues with their carcasses. And so the value tied to these cattle is particularly high, coinciding with uh, a downturn in numbers for conventional beef cattle. Big part of our country has experienced widespread drought. Cow numbers, beef cow numbers have declined. Dairy cow numbers have maintained uh, themselves at a pretty stable number. So the supply of dairy-based animals uh, today as crossbreds has remained consistent while beef cattle numbers have declined. So we've gone from 17 or 18% of the industry coming from a dairy. Uh, today, more than 20% of fed beef animals coming from a dairy so really? it's, yeah it's, it's supply and demand right yeah. i mean supply sure. and demand is driving a big part of the value and the importance of these cattle uh, but also there are many very positive things about the cattle including eating quality marbling that that have come about through the crossbreeding scenario as well your research has focused more recently on these dairy beef animals how do dairy beef animals compared to beef animals? Well, we've talked about the finished dairy animals that they they are uh, longer, bigger, uh, harder to process. Tell us about the dairy beef versus beef animals. I would just generally say very comparable, more so than the traditional or conventional uh, Holstein steer for sure. Eating quality wise, these animals on average have an advantage. So if we compare uh, the crossbred dairy animal to the average beef animal, then we see more marbling on average. Uh, we see greater tenderness on average. And we even see improvements in flavor and contributing to eating quality. So these animals produce not only a product that is as good as conventional beef on average, but on average are actually better um, in terms of eating quality. Where these cattle are disadvantaged to the traditional beef animal is, is in muscle mass. These cattle are, are still not as muscular on average as the total conventional beef population. Um, so there's opportunities there to continue to influence and increase muscularity, carcass conformation in these crossbred animals, which is translatable to, to red meat yield. These animals are a little bit behind the curve um, in comparison to conventional beef on red meat yield. And that would be similar to the discussion for dressing percentage. So these cattle are about 1% less on average in converting their live weight to carcass weight. Uh, so we see that, that disadvantage in comparison to the conventional beef cattle. The, the biggest concern in the way of a difference between crossbreds and conventional beef is the gut health of the animals. The way the animals are currently being managed or fed in, in the feedlot scenario, but also stemming back into the calf nursery or calf ranch models, providing feed aggressively, concentrate aggressively to these animals long-term, has created an issue uh, with liver abscesses. And, and on average, these cattle have more liver abscesses. In addition to having just more abscesses, they also have a higher proportion of severe liver abscesses. And those severe liver abscesses are really what create the problem. The fact that they become severe enough 
not only to condemn or lose the liver as an edible product, but also they can attach to other parts of the carcass, like the diaphragm or uh, in severe cases, the abdominal wall, which cause not only for that liver to be condemned, but also require additional trimming to the other valuable parts of the carcass, which not only cost us meat value, but, but time. And, and that processing time causing backups or slowdowns in the processing plant really become a, a significant issue. And, and that's where most of the dollar losses are found um, in processing these animals. Um, in many cases, those severe liver abscesses will cause for the condemnation of other components of the viscera that we that we have, like awful items of, of tripe, uh, components of the stomach, uh, heart, lungs. Again, many other associated visceral components could also be condemned as a result of that liver. This is, you're going to hear a lot about this, right? And, and you probably already have, because this is the one major drawback to these cattle coming through the processing facilities today. Now, I'd be remiss if I said, if I didn't say that we were improving. I, I think uh, the industry is indicating that liver abscesses are becoming fewer as a result of, of management changes, again, both at the calf ranch level as, as well as in the feedlot. Uh, because we have seen some success stories with individual management styles or, or strategies to reduce those liver abscesses. But holistically, it's still a problem. You know, we still okay. see considerably more abscess cattle in the crossbred population than we do in the conventional beef population. And we see more abscesses in the crossbreds than we did the conventional Holstein. Yeah, really, it's kind of a, a head scratcher there, right? You, you would think yeah. we would make improvements, but um, I think there's a variety of, of reasons for that, and, and most of them would be speculative. The fact that we have crossbreds in far more feedlots than we had purebred Holsteins, uh, at least in number. So it, we're really, these are different animals, right? I mean, they're not right. conventional beef animals. They're not traditional Holsteins. And so they require a management style that's unique to them. And, and it's been a learning curve. I guess I can kind of leave it there, but these cattle can't be managed the same as the traditional uh, parental breed types. So we, we have to figure out and we're beginning to figure out how to manage them differently to improve all of these things, but in particular, you know, the liver abscess condition. Can you give us any clues as to what's being considered at, for uh, both raising at a calf ranch and, and in the feedlot? What's the guess that, uh, on how to do a better job with that? Yeah, you're framing up the question correctly. I, I, you know, guess is one way to describe it because we don't truly know, right? We don't have right. our finger on the problem well enough to say that this is what's causing it or this is what's preventing it. You know, in general, uh, this is an infection of the liver. Mm -hmm. uh, that infection, uh, for the most part, is thought to come from a, a compromised GI tract. Okay. So a, a lesion or an ulceration in the rumen or even in the intestine are, are thought to be the leading causes for the infection in the liver. So essentially, uh, 
pathogenic bacteria, in, in particular Fusobacterium, Nicophrum, other species of Fusobacterium uh, that are also tied to, to conditions such as foot rot, can enter the bloodstream. The liver is effective at filtering that bloodstream, and so it captures that bacteria in the liver, and then it manifests itself as an abscess. Things that we're doing that compromise gut health, particularly an acidotic event, is really what we're trying to prevent. How do we do that? Some theories or, or things that have really shown themselves is managing health. And that's particularly true in the calf nursery or calf ranch phases where we can create a more robust animal uh, that stays healthier. Whether that is um, respiratory disease or stress or other things that can contribute to fluctuations in intake, many believe that that providing that calf colostrum very early at day old and then in the first period of weaning from the traditional model into to milk feeding, that is beneficial in building a more robust or, or bulletproof calf. The fact of the matter is, is these calves receive grain as early as day old. Providing that grain to these cattle provides challenge to their underdeveloped rumen. Um, right. so these cattle are, are having higher concentrate, producing more acid within their GI tract, which can lead to ulceration or, or, or compromise to that gut health. And, and as we transition into the finishing stage or the feedlot stage, transition is key. You know, stepping these animals up a little bit more gradually uh, onto a really concentrate dense and, and rich diet using more roughage, more fiber. I think we're in general agreement that that more fiber, particularly in that transition phase, a lower concentration of starch in that transition phase can in fact reduce the number of liver abscesses. And then being just a little less aggressive in feeding the animals with more roughage, more fiber, uh, a coarser chopped roughage and lower starch concentrations are pretty telling uh, in, in animals with fewer liver abscesses. So, but feeding them really hot, you know, for last lack of better words, with starch right. and concentrates uh, certainly can and does contribute to liver abscess condition. So again, a little bit less aggressive, a little slower pace diet, of course, that removes opportunity for performance. But being a little more patient, to describe it in that way, mm -hmm. uh, seems to be very effective at reducing the liver abscess prevalence. All of that is hinged upon health management. When these animals become stressed, when these animals become ill, they naturally, inherently fluctuate their diet. And those fluctuations in intake really complicate the issue. So, so keeping that animal healthy, I think, is really the key. And then being a little less aggressive on the feeding regime can be very beneficial. And that's both at the calf ranch and at the feedlot. Both at the calf ranch and at the feedlot. Uh, the, the one thing that I think is really unique about the calf nursery phase or, or calf ranch stage is that animal, you know, managing that animal's health is so critical. If we create a health issue at, at the, the calf nursery stage, we, we live with that the rest of the animal's life. And, and so that preventative approach there is not only good management, but it's the right thing to do, you know, morally and ethically for the animal. 
uh, from a welfare sense. And, and that's something that we really need to focus on in that early stage. Sometimes a feedlot really can't overcome problems created at the calf ranch. I would say, though, that a, that a feedlot can create problems in a good calf from a calf ranch, too. Uh, okay. By being overly aggressive or not managing health appropriately in the feedlot stage. So this is a shared responsibility between, you know, calf ranch phase, nursery phase, and the finishing phase. It's, we can't have a failure in either of those sectors and expect a good outcome. We don't like to, but but we see finger pointing across those lines quite a lot um, in management. And, and the reality is, is we all have to do the right thing and manage these animals differently to get the right outcome. What are the challenges in finishing? Have we looked at dairy beef with grass fed or versus traditional grain fed? And what differences are there there or has that not been looked at yet? Uh, I can't speak with perfect accuracy here, but because I'm not aware of everything that's going on, but I there really aren't many, if any, uh, of these crossbreds put out on a grass feeding uh, regime or scenario. Most all of them would be fed in a feedlot setting with with concentrate diets. This is somewhat anecdotal, but have had conversations with those that have tried to background these crossbred animals at, at a three or 400 pound weight uh, to transition them to the feedlot. As we would conventional cattle on wheat pasture or irrigated pasture or even dryland pasture, the behavioral aspects of the dairy animal are interesting. Because of the way that they are reared in the hutch, being bottle fed, there has been some observation that the cattle just don't know how to graze. And they, they've lost that, you know, inherent ability to go out and graze pasture. And so right. there's right. been stories of low performance, extremely low performance. Yeah, if you can't uh, put it, your head through a headlock, you can't eat, right? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there. There are many behavioral things that play in, into this discussion as well, including the liver abscess discussion. Um, the way that the animals eat, the frequency at which they eat, the mm. volume at which they eat, inherited from uh, the maternal side or the dairy cow, is interesting. Uh, the licking behavior, the social behavior, um, all of these things have been considered in in these discussions, and there's probably some truth to the fact that these behaviors coming from the dairy side of the equation have contributed to uh, some of the issues of, of even liver abscess, like the amount of hair that we find ingested in the rumen and, and that providing an abrasion, helping to create some of those ulcerations or lesions in rumen. Again, most of these things speculative probably have some something to them. Let's go back to the genetics part of this. Are there crosses that seem to work better? I mean, Holsteins are obviously a more of a meat type of animal than a Jersey is. What are the uh, the different breeds that we're using on the on the male side to create these animals? The the difference in the the dairy breeds themselves, Holstein versus Jersey, predominantly are obvious. Obvious, you know, with in regard to the phenotype and and even muscularity that we see in those animals. Breeding with with complementary male genetics and beef genetics in this case is critical. One thing for sure in the Holstein side is we need to downsize 
the frame score of the animal. So breeding those Holstein cows to a more moderate uh, frame scored bull on the beef side is critical. Complementing both the Holstein and the Jersey with muscularity is critical, neither of which are heavily muscled breeds. Um, so we need to add that muscularity. Dystocia, of course, of consideration. We, we need to make sure that we're not putting a calf inside those cows that they cannot you know, give birth to easily. Uh, right. So that there's a big difference between the Holstein and the Jersey in regard to physical size and the size of the calf they can handle. Generalizing here, but uh, the Jerseys are lower performing in the feedlot. They don't gain as well. As a result, they require more time to feed. Um, that becomes an animal that's more expensive to feed. So feed efficiency becomes a, a critical a factor in selecting sire genetics in both breeds, but especially jerseys. Dairymen and different uh, genetics programs have gone after different characteristics in carcass. So we have still a large group uh, going after uh, marbling genetics, for example, with, with the Angus breed. We see a, a large, uh, perhaps an equal amount of the industry going after more of the phenotype traits associated with lean meat yield, utilizing limousine genetics, Simmental genetics, um, Charlet genetics, anything in the way of a composite can, you know, continental breed sire going into those scenarios. The, the continental composites do very well uh, from a red meat yield standpoint and, and would be used well in those scenarios. That's not to say that, that a purebred Angus sire um, can't offer those same things uh, in this crossbreeding scenario, but oftentimes pursuing marbling, which again is is counter uh, most of the time to the red meat yield characteristics. So a lot of different opportunities being being passed around. Dairymen located in the extreme southwest, uh, Southern California, Arizona, where temperatures become very extreme in the summertime, are also exploring with non-black breeds. Charlet, a great example of that to avoid issue with heat stress, you know, of course, associated with sun and, and the heat in those areas of the world. And those things work well geographically. A lot of different things going on in this sector of our industry. So if I'm a dairy producer and I want to get into this whole, uh, into, into crossbreeding, these are some of my animals, am I looking for uh, where I'm going to process these animals or sell these animals for processing? And how do I find out what kinds of things those processors are looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. I think with the end product in mind and the value tied to that, it, it would be wise for a producer to, to consider where the cattle are going to be marketed in the terminal stage. Basically, what we're saying there is, is which companies and or facilities offer the best incentive for quality and yield performance. So in a grid-based marketing system, some grids will give preference to marbling more so than, than red meat yield um, and vice versa. Some grids will give more incentive to, to red meat yield. So I can't answer that question, you know, universally, but selling or marketing and breeding cattle with intention relative to that end product values is very critical. The reality is, is most dairies choose a genetics provider. Mm -hmm. they, they have an AI technician that uh, represents a specific bull stud or 
our group of genetics. In general, those bull studs are pursuing different outcomes. And, and so whether that be red meat yield or, or straight quality um, in, in the way of marbling, so it really is more about the partnership with the genetics provider that determines the outcome of those carcasses and cattle. You can shop those all day, every day. They'll be happy to share their information with you and, and earn your business. The best thing to look at is, of course, profit margin at the end. Going after different objectives and outcomes through genetic selection is, is key there. It goes back to the breed discussion. It goes back to the, the genetic and genomic selection of the bulls that you're using. Um, and most dairy men and women are, are relying upon their genetics provider to make those decisions for them. Are there beef bulls now that are noted as uh, special, should be used on for these dairy beef crosses? Essentially every case, yes. I mean, um, these genetics providers have a subset of beef sires that are targeted to this scenario aspects of fertility, aspects of, of calving ease, um, and then aspects of performance and carcass merit, very much grouped together in a, a limited offering of sires for this particular scenario. And, and again, putting trust in those genetics companies' uh, ability to sort those bulls is, is a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, they, they obviously know what they're doing, doing that, but, but there are different flavors, right, of how you'd like to go about producing those calves. And it doesn't mean that that all genetics providers don't offer a variety of options, but in general, each company has kind of chosen their method of whether they pursue quality or or compositional attributes, or some are trying to do a blend, you know, and, and it really comes down to who you're working with as mm -hmm. to what you're you're trying to accomplish. Are there any resources for dairy producers as far as uh, figuring out their return on investment for this kind of a program? It would be relationship, relationship with, uh, again, that genetics provider who has a program, perhaps, in partnership with a packer or mm -hmm. multiple packers. They should have an idea or get feedback from the packer as to how those carcasses are performing. But it's not just the packer, right? The relationship with the feedlot, relationship with the, with the calf nursery or ranch, all of that requires relationship and data assimilation and data feedback is critical. Um, I think a dairy a dairy producer that is really interested in producing the best best calf is going to have to have relationship at each one of those sectors of our industry to truly understand you know what they're producing. Market today encourages dairymen to sell calves day old. The day old calves are just worth too much right? To, to really right. maintain a lot of ownership, but there'll come a time where that'll change and maintaining that ownership from beginning to end will, will be the best thing to do. If it's not today and, you know, in certain scenarios, yeah, that next layer or next step in the process, getting feedback from them in the way of data is critical. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that data is volunteered right back to the dairy producer because they want them to improve for their sake. So are these dairy beef animals, are they, are we eating New York's from them? Are we having ground beef? Are we, you know, tri-tips? What are we, what kind of cuts are we getting from them? Yeah, the, the cut mix or, or the cutout strategies are identical to conventional beef. So you're, you're getting a blend of, of steak cuts, roast cuts, and trim. 
A little over half of the carcass ends up in whole muscle cuts. So that would be steaks and roast. And then 40 to 45% of the carcass ends up in trimmings, which we traditionally characterize as hamburger, right? But it's the same mix as conventional beef. That is probably the beauty most so for these crossbreds is they match up very well with conventional beef in terms of the product mix. And so it's being sold right alongside conventional product in the retail and food service setting. Have you run out of silage, had to buy expensive, marked up feed to fill the gap? Maybe production's dropped due to lower dry matter intakes. Are molds or mycotoxins creeping through your piles or bunkers? And pitching the rot is a dangerous pain. Oxygen is the enemy Pack it out, then keep it out with SealPro, the professional-grade silage barrier film protection chosen by top professional farmers like you. Make more, better, safer silage with SealPro. Learn more at SealProSilage.com. One of the things we had talked about when I was back in Nebraska was hides. So I'm curious, I was told that there's not a lot of places in the United States where we tan or, or use hides. Is there any market for Holstein hides or, that is different than beef? Yeah, I mean, hide value certainly comes into the, the discussion of total value. Uh, the Holstein cattle are going to produce lighter, thinner hides with a slightly lower value in the tanning market. So there's there's a minor change in value tied to that. Hides today are not worth a lot. So this is not a major discussion point today. Now, if hide values went back to what they used to be, where they were the most valuable byproduct from the animal, then this discussion becomes more relevant. But uh, the traditional Holstein produced a lower valued hide. The crossbreds would be intermediate. Mm -hmm. To, sure. to the conventional beef, but probably on average, not as good as conventional beef in terms of the weight and thickness and quality of those hides, but only a minor contributor to, to total value today. We've been talking with um, Dr. Dale Warner from Texas Tech University, who works with Cargill in research there. Do you have anything to add, Dr. Warner? Yeah, absolutely. Overwhelmingly positive, these crossbreds. Um, you know, we highlight the things that are that are not perfect. Uh, we highlight the, the areas of improvement. But I want to emphasize that these cattle are better uh, in so many ways than the conventional purebred or straightbred dairy animal coming into the beef industry. So we're doing really good things and making great strides in the way of efficiency, discussions of sustainability, things that we didn't touch on today uh, that are added benefit are traceability, the ability to trace these animals back to source and origin. There's a huge potential for increased marketability and value tied to that that we haven't really tapped into yet. The message of, of carbon um, and these being a sustainable opportunity for the beef industry and in that we're sharing carbon with milk production and beef production. It essentially cuts that carbon at the beginning to zero or in half at minimum in sharing that carbon. So we can talk about opportunities to grow a lot. Those opportunities would be to capitalize on traceability, capitalize on carbon messaging tied to these cattle. And I don't think we've seen the full potential of that yet in our industry. In fact, I know we haven't, but there will become a time where those 
two things may be as valuable or more valuable than anything else we discuss. And so I, I think the future is bright. I'd like to encourage dairy men and women to continue down this path of producing better beef, being more cognizant of the fact that they are beef producers. And I think finally, the dollars returned to the dairy are significant um, in the way of beef production. And that's a very, very positive thing. And we don't want it to go away. So pay close attention to management, pay close attention to value of these calves, because if we don't, it may not be there in the future, right? Mm -hmm. But if we do, I think the future is very, very bright for the dairy men and women who are producing these calves. And I was very encouraged, um, like I said last week at Nebraska Cattlemen, about how the the people who are coming from the other side of this of this equation are very interested in learning on how to how to feed these animals and and care for them in that sense too. Absolutely. I think it's been the biggest change in the beef production system in decades. And uh, it's fascinating for most people. And, and it's good to see that people want to get better at what they're doing and, and want to optimize and capitalize on the value in this time. So it's it's been very neat and rewarding to be part of, of this paradigm shift in our industry. It's been crazy. Yeah. Be sure to like and share this podcast. It's been very, very informative. Where can can people reach you for questions? Best way to, to reach me is via email, dale.warner at ttu.edu. I'd be happy to take your email and, and respond that way or give you a call if that's what works best for you. So Very good. Super. Thank you so much. This is Connie Coover with Connor AgriScience and Seal Pro Silage Barrier Film. This has been the Dairy Voice podcast by Dairy Business News, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.